You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members, for members. In Season 11, educators discuss a culture of care with Dr. Amy Yillick. Welcome back to season 11 of Oregon Grow. I am Dr. Amy Yillick, and I am here today to talk with Ryan Harding about Tier 3 supports. And welcome, Ryan. So glad you could join me. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. And it feels like a great opportunity to talk about things that are going on in our district. Ooh, yeah, for sure. Um, so before we get going, I would love to hear a little bit about your background. You know, how did you end up in education and what do you do now? Well, um, so first and foremost, I, as, as a human being, I had growing up, I had no idea I would be in education. I did not think that was going to be my pathway. And so I guess my, my early identity, um, both my parents are super blue collar. My mom and dad, neither, neither of them went to college. Um, and my mom worked in like retail. My dad worked at post office. So the thought of college a lot of the time was not in my forefront. Um, but I was a athlete and so I played basketball and soccer, um, most of my childhood and lucky enough when I was getting to the point of picking colleges, I got a like 10 or so division one soccer offers Holy so, so you play soccer, like legit. Soccer. Yeah. And so, you know, I think for me, that was kind of my driving force for me to go to college. And um, I think me as a, as a professional, I've picked up so many pieces from that, you know, working with a team, you know, work ethic. Um, so I'm super thankful for those years. And, you know, Lucky enough, I went to UNLV. So for people that don't know the acronym, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and people probably think, why in the world would somebody from Troutdale, Oregon, choose UNLV as your college? And answer was pretty simple. I had a coach that um, I had when I was about 13, and he actually ended up being my, my college coach through my my four years there and, you know, that relationship with him and, and the ability that he could get out of me was, um, really, really Im- impactful for me. And, th- and that's the right. reason why I chose that school. So, right. oh my gosh, know, I think so that, that just like gave me chills, the idea, because that comes down to like mentorship, right? Yeah. So yeah. here's this person that, you know, had some influence, on you when you were 13 and now you're in college getting to work with them again. That's amazing. Yeah. And, um, his name is Dan shell and he still lives in Las Vegas. He was from the Oregon as well. So we had tons of similarities and, you know, I saw him as almost like a second parent. And I think, you know, part of the reason why I chose education was because I saw the impact that a coach could have on me and shaping me as a human. So, um, we'll go back a little bit. So, First two years played um, and, you know, was starter for the most of my two years. So freshman starting and I was a goalkeeper and starting at that position is a little rare, but, um, you know, got those opportunities. And then going into my junior year, um, 
it was July-ish. So for soccer at NCAA, the fall is when soccer is played just like it is for Oregon sports. And um, typically there's a preseason and I most of the, my teammates try to get back early. Um, and about three weeks before we were about to start preseason, I actually went on a jog with, with Dan and we, he noticed there was a lump on my neck and, um, he's like, you should go see the team physician. And, you know, we, I ended up following through with that. And a few days later, after a couple scans, I found out I had, um, stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think, you know, when you think about those forks in your road, that's where I think me as a human being really started to, to shape who I am today. Um, so, you know, 20, 20 year old getting ready for his junior season, hearing that, and then just like, what do I do next? And so, you know, I went back home, um, and still, I think in first moments I was feeling really sorry for myself and just like, how could this happen? And, um, since I was 20, still on my parents' insurance, I, ended up going to Randall's Children's Hospital in Portland. And I remember the first day kind of walking up into the building and and seeing um, all the kids there and just seeing the level of support that their families and the nurses and the doctors had. Um, Just kind of, it changed me. And and I like always will remember that all the little kids just running around and thinking like, you know, with with love and, and all of these things in place, like there's hope. And so you know, that just kind of have sh- has shifted my thinking for, yeah. for who I am today. Um, and then, you know, I went through treatment for about six months, um, some setbacks, but ended up going back to UNLV in January. And then my last two years, um, taking the starting position back, got wow. second conference my, my junior year. My senior year, I was first team all conference and all region. And uh, we made it to the NCAA tournament that year and we're ranked top so it was just, and, and I think I, I say this story because, you know, alongside that whole process, Dan was texting me and messaging me and supporting me and, and fam, family and friends. And so um, I think about things happen for a reason, right? And that just showed me like how powerful love and support can be. And so after I finished my four years of, of school, I, I got what you'd call kind of an athlete degree, a multidisciplinary degree where I just didn't know what to do. Right. Um, I stepped into an ABA program and I, I loved it. And I love just supporting kids. And it really um, kind of gave me an understanding of what behavior looks like and how it manifests with kids. And it, it, because of all the things that occurred in my life, it, it helped me have a lens of empathy and support. So, right. Fast forward, I think we're like 2016. I moved, my wife and I, um, who's my girlfriend at the time, we moved from Vegas to here. And I took an IA position in the ILS program where I met your colleague, Aaron Taylor. Yeah. And I was like, still, like, I don't know what I want to do. Like, I love working with kids, but I don't know if this is the direction I want to go in. And so about a couple months in the school year, I enrolled to get my master's and got my SPED endorsement. And Two years later, I applied for, um, which was called a behavior teacher at the time. <laughs> yeah. At, at Step Up. And they were going through a giant redesign. And I remember Aaron emailing me, like, hey, you should apply for this. It's kindergarten through third grade. And I was like, no way at first. Because <laughs> um, I was so used to older kids. Right. And, right. Yeah. And I fell in love with it. And so 
Um, for those that are listening, Step Up is the Redmond School District's um, SEL program, and it was start from the ground up. And, you know, I served a wide range of students. And I would really say I was more K through fourth. It was a K through three classroom, but I got a lot of fourth graders too. And that really helped me build my skill set. I, you know, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, as a SEL teacher, you have to build some strong classroom routine, some structure. You learn how to be um, a support person for your families. Cause I mean, often in that role, the parents have had such a hard time with education because they've, and they've gotten played, their kid gets placed in this program offsite and they're feeling defeated. And so again, that support piece where I feel so much is like my identity, like that's where I came in and learned so much, um, but served, you know, a wide range of kids from, you know, some kids on the spectrum, some kids who have experienced a ton of trauma to, kids that just had difficulty regulating. Um, and I think the constant that I, I felt like I enjoyed and my team moved with was just supporting them, being there, humanizing them, empathy. Like, um, And, you know, I got to spend four years there, lots of successes, lots of kids going back to their campuses, um, some kids that I still get to see to this day. Um, and I'll get to try to, like, go in their classrooms and say hi and usually get welcome with a big hug. Um, but after four years, I then stepped into this role as um, the district behavior specialist. And I think for most people, when they shift from the teacher to kind of the, the TOSA SEL role is, or the TOSA, the, the teacher to the TOSA role is that you start to support adults. And, and I, I think the first year, just, you know, figuring out how to navigate that. Um, I mean, I had, I, don't have, I feel like as, as much of experience as others, but I knew in such a small amount of time, I learned so much from the people that I was around. So, you know, kind of in my current role, I'm a lead CPI trainer. Um, so people that, if they don't know what CPI, it's the crisis prevention institutes de-escalation training. And, and really I try to emphasis on the non-hands-on stuff, what we're doing to de-escalate students and how we're supporting them. Um, I also help a ton with you know, collaboration in FBAs and BSPs and tier three supports for um, students that are having usually more outward behaviors. Um, and then, you know, I also am part of the SPED team that with all of our coaches, so I work really, really closely with them. And I think kind of what all comes together is again, that, that support component. Like I am just going into buildings where people are tired and overwhelmed. And I'm sure Amy, you go through this too all the time of just people are like, I don't know what I'm doing. So it's just another lens and another idea to support teams. And a lot of the times there's so many great things in place for those teams. So I just see my, myself as that, that advocate and supporter for, for um, the teams that I work with, but it's a, there's a lot of all other duties is assigned as well (laughs) in my role. So it's constantly evolving. My week looks very, very different. So. Right. That's amazing. And when you talk, I like, well, one, I got all choked up when you were talking about going through and surviving cancer and having your, that mentor that, you know, you mentioned still in contact. I don't think people realize sometimes outside of education, how, how connected good educators are to their students. Like, you know, really changing lives, saving lives, changing trajectories for kids, you know, and that you've had that. And I'm sure you offer that to the students that you work with as well. 
Absolutely. And I think the, the one thing that I take away from him is I remember our final game that we had and I just was like in tears and saying like, thank you for, for everything. And I remember him saying, you put in the work, I just guided you. And so I try to lead in that way. And I think about the people before me. And I know Aaron was in this position previously to me. It's like, how can I help support and guide people to be the best professionals they can be so they can better support kids? So that's amazing. Yeah. All right. You gave a lot of acronyms. And so I will put for people that are listening that maybe don't know what ABA is, you did mention CPI, but FBA and BSP, I'll put links in the talk notes for people so they can look into that if they'd like. I know we get the the SPED world, like we get really fluent in acronyms. um, And I think my other... The other piece that I didn't mention, I'm I'm doing my admin right now too. So moving in that direction. That's amazing. I could, I, in just this brief conversation, I could see you being able to do things at a systems level. You've got that, you you know, you've got that heart for sure. All right. So I interviewed someone, um, previously and we talked about tier two supports and I'm like, how are tier three supports different than tier two supports? What what would you say? Uh, Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I think when I think of tier two supports, I think of more of short term at times. And I think of tier three, more of that long-term individualized And I think, you know, we were talking a little bit prior to that. I think what we're seeing sometimes in schools are like tier three above tier three. And how do we support those students? Um, And because that's going to be so individualized for so long and we don't know what that's going to look like. And we know Mm -hmm. there's so many components to that. Um, But yeah, I think the other piece to tiers and any kind of data is just making sure we're humanizing the kids in general that we're supporting. So I think about, yeah, what, what does that kid need on that given day is, is to me the most important piece. Do they need tier three for a long period of time? Sure. If that's what they need to be a successful individual and a, a student to be a functioning adult later, then great. That's what we're going to provide for them. Um, I just think we've seen a higher level of kids coming in with so little ability to regulate their emotions and I think what's playing against sometimes schools is just it's such a big environment that they're not able to pull back. And I think another piece in my role is I really try to have teams look at it through the brain piece and like these kids are just not quite ready. So I know I I kind of answered your question, but yeah, I think of more tier three is that individual support. Right. Those specific kids that have specific needs where like tier two might be more groupings of kids with unique needs. And um, how, like you've been doing this for a while. So how has that changed since the pandemic? Because we've seen a change in our work across the region. Absolutely. I think for me, I think we're seeing more of it, especially at the early ages I think we're seeing a lot of kinders and first graders, and I think sixth grade is another age group where we see it too, where they just do not have foundational social skills or ability or skills to want to be in the classroom. Um, And I think about the playground is like a huge telling, you know, story to that. We see so many of our 
challenges on the playground where kids just do not know how to socialize with each other. So, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a huge component is, is kids just don't know how to interact as well as, as previously. And rightfully so, like kids were put in isolation for so long. Um, and I think, you know, some other pieces too I've seen is just sometimes the intensity of behaviors. I think at times we see kids, you know, maybe going to the level of like threatening or being, you know, just super, super aggressive. And I did see that prior to COVID, but I think we're seeing more of that in the school. It's not just like an isolated event. We're seeing them in, in so many of our schools in the Redmond School District. And I would say too, to ask, you know, teachers to manage that, it's a lot, right? And I think that that's mm-hmm. not something everybody's always equipped or ready to do. And I think many of us, when we're going through our teaching programs, did you ever think that you were going to work with a kid who could be aggressive and because of their needs haven't been met? And I think that's super important too. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like I've seen the intensity increase over the last couple of years. Right. Um, I've been reflecting on lately in um, our work that women that were pregnant during COVID their kids are now three, right? And so, and you think about all the stress that it must have been like for women being pregnant. And we know that stress impacts, you know, development in utero. And we're, you know, we're hearing from other professionals that these kids just aren't meeting their developmental milestones. And so I just think about what's coming, like right now, it's really challenging. Like the schools are on fire, right? And And the thing is, is it's not like every single child, it's one or two children, but they dominate so much of the adult energy and resources. They take so much of that. So I have this, I'm just worried about what's coming, you know, if it's bad right now, if we don't do something different, what's coming. So, and I think Amy, you kind of hit on the head too, of like, people are so overwhelmed right now with what is going on in their schools and to provide feedback and, and ideas for them. Sometimes they're not ready to hear that and ready to be able to uh, have those things put in place. So I think as, you know, both of us kind of are in those roles where we're the outsider coming in, it's just a really tricky balance of making sure that the human there, the staff member is supported in a way where they feel like they can make some sort of impact. Um, right. Because it is, it is challenging. And like you said, when there's one student or two students that are impacting the entire learning environment, it, it's hard to manage for one classroom teacher. So, yeah, yeah. for sure. So switching maybe to a little more positivity, <laughs> not that I, not that I am the toxic positivity person. I'm all about being real, but I am curious, like you've been doing this for a while. I imagine you've had some successes. Can you talk about a couple of those? Yeah, absolutely. I think just knowing that eight years ago I was an IA and coming into a TOSA, like behavior specialist role is signs of, I'm doing something right. (laughs) um, And people are trusting enough in me. Um, I think the big successes I can think about are, you know, one, when I see like the light bulb turn on for a staff member now of like, Hey, I can do this. Or, Hey, I, I see that you, these things that you've been telling me for, you know, four or five months, like I'm finally being able to implement it. Um, And then saying again, like the, the guidance, like I gave you guidance. You're the one that put in the work. I think that's something I, I strive off of. 
Um, and when I was the teacher, I mean, touched on a little bit earlier, um, seeing kids transition back to their home campuses and seeing like the happiness and seeing like the feeling of being welcomed again back to their school is, is always amazing. So um, I know that's, that's another tricky subject for, for schools is like, when do we have a kid go back to their, their main learning environment? And there's not necessarily a criteria that fits that. Um, but, you know, one of the big ones I think about was I had a student a couple years ago who was on, was just right out of COVID, was on a two hour day, um, was accessing um, the disc or the region's um, treatment program. And, you know, family got a lot of great things and components out of it. And first getting him did not trust any staff member or students just wasn't ready to work with adults while we were doing this all virtually. So that's also oh, a fun component. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then remembering, you know, this is, you know, September-ish, October, still trying to, you know, work with the student. We know seeing that he's pretty impacted in a lot of different ways. And um, by mid-time, I think it was spring break, the next year was fully back integrated on his home campus and never gets talked about in the district behavior meetings, didn't get talked about at really seats. The only updates mm-hmm. they could ever give what that was that that student was doing really well. And again, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, every time I'm on that campus, I try to go out of my way to say hi. But, and I, and again, I hope that that, that student saw that I love them and cared about them and, and can can pass that on to somebody else one day. Right. So So with that success, it sounds like there was, there was a lot going on, like an element of skill development and an element of trust development, but also maybe the, the, you know, helping families as well, helping that family develop some skills. Yeah. And I think that's another component for educators that is obviously really tricky, right? We have that, that can be tough to navigate, but I, again, I, when I taught, I always tried to make sure that families, students, everybody, we were part of a community and making sure that they felt welcome. Um, And I was very, very intentional about that because again, I mean, the family is such an impact on the student. And if that's not trusted from the team, then we're not going to go anywhere. So, yeah. 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 I agree. That's amazing. What are, what are the barriers to your work? Let's narrow it down. <laughs> let's, let's narrow it down. You know, I think, I think one barrier is, I think one of my skills is going in and modeling and showing how we would manage maybe a situation or a student or, and, you know, I, there's, we have 12 schools. We also have a district SEL program. Um, and we got the number right, but I'm the only district behavior specialist this year. So serving all of those schools to that capacity seems impossible a lot of days. Wow. Um, so, you know, last year there was two of us and one, the switch was once actually stayed at the district SEL program. And I kind of, you know, went on my own and it's just, it can be a lot sometimes trying to figure out, like, I want to support every program, but that's just not feasible. Um, so, you know, one day hoping to get, to get more of somebody that's in a similar role or just finding better systems to help, help teams overall. Um, yeah. And I think, 
I mean, let's be fair too. Senate Bill eight nineteen has made things you know challenging for for SPED and um, just trying to figure out how we best serve students with this big shift. And I think our district's doing a great job navigating it. Um, and you know, again, adding that extra piece of overwhelming stuff to to staff and how do we support them? So. Right. Um, Could you just briefly describe what Senate Bill 819 is? Sure. <laughs> uh, so it's essentially about abbreviated days um, and just having a process to, if a kid, if the district feels like they want to have a student on abbreviated day, there is a, a massive process. But at the end of the day, the parent has the rights to a full day of school. Um and I think, you know, I think it is great, right? I think often, yeah, I, I think it's great that we want to try to offer kids. They need to be here to get the instruction, but that is a lot with maybe some of the resources that we have. Um, right. So it's just, yeah, I think teams are just not feeling like, how do I serve all these kids to the capacity that I want mm-hmm. to when um, there's not enough resources for us to do that? Right. And, you know, I mean, I just having been in education for a long time, you know, the least restrictive environment sometimes is the the most restrictive environment. Right. Mm. Like kids do well, you know, under highly some some kids do well under very highly structured, very um, supported and also shorter (laughs) amounts of education, you know, and so, and that's tough and that's not, you know, and I get it from a family lens too. Like that's hard for families to be like, how do I have my kid home half the day? I have to work. Right. And I think that, that, that piece, and then the piece of them missing instruction, right. They deserve Mm -hmm. an opportunity too. And yeah, I, I'm with you. At times, the short spurts were so helpful to getting a kid back and feeling capacity. Because I also think that the challenge is the student that is now on a full day, that's that has never been on a full day before. That's a big jump for them physically, emotionally, like everything. And they're tired. And for, yeah. for us to expect them to have this like perfect day isn't going to happen. So I think one thing that at times the shortened days could be successful was always, you know, the intention of getting back to it, but also them feeling success because no kid doesn't want to feel successful. Um, so it's a, I know it's super controversial, but again, I'm happy that our district's doing a great job navigating it and we're just doing our best to offer the best education for kids that we can. Yeah. That's great. So you've been doing this work for a few minutes now and you clearly (laughs) like you have um, been very successful at it. I can see your trajectory of being in the class and then the behavior support. And now you're doing a leadership program. How do you how do you make sure you're taking care of yourself so you are fueled to do this work? That is another great question. Um, I think for me, one thing that's really helpful is so I get up early um, like 5 a.m. ish, and I go on a morning run. And that 30 minutes to an hour of just like isolation. And right now it's it's dark. Um, right. And I live in Redmond where um, I live really close to the canyon. If some people are familiar with Redmond, there's a, there's a canyon and there's a trail. So I'll run on the trail every um, morning. And that just helps me kind of clear my head and get me ready for the day. 
Um, on days that I don't run, I can tell I'm much crabbier and <laughs> not as patient. And I'll be really upfront with some of my people of like, hey, I didn't run this morning, so watch out. Um, yeah. But I think I think that is helpful. But also knowing like, you know, when I'm home with my family and we have a one and a half year old and just like making sure I'm home and present there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not easy. I'm not going to go out here and say I'm perfect at that because I, when something's lingering on your mind at work, you want to do everything you can to touch it. Um, Mm -hmm. But that piece and having a family, just knowing that I want to be there for them and um, it it helps kind of check me. Um, And then kind of the last piece, I don't do this as much, but I'm also a fly fisherman so yeah. being outside and just like hearing all the nature, usually the places I'll go to, there's no cell phone reception. So, um, and I think the fact that as we know, stuff that is rhythmic, it can help regulate the brain. I think fly fishing and running, the fact that they're both so rhythmic helps mm-hmm. me kind of, kind of regulate and refresh. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. You sound like a central Oregonian for uh, sure. Definitely <laughs> Oregonian. Yeah, that's great. So, okay. I love this question. If I gave you a magic wand and you could use it in your work, what would happen? Do I get like a couple wands or? (laughs) It's a magic wand. It can do whatever you want it to do. And, you know, I thought about this question. The one that I've always said, and it's more of like a superpower than a wand. I wish that I could jump into other people's brains and feel like their knowledge and feel what it's like to be them. Um, Could be a little scary, but also just like, there's so many amazing people that I get to work with every day. And I would just love to hear like, or see the resources that happen. I think about you, Amy, and all the things that you've done in education in our community. Like, could I jump in your brain and steal a couple of You don't want to jump in my brain. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) how does this woman get through life <laughs> <laughs> but and also i mean not just for adults but for kids too i think if mm-hmm. i could see what it feels like for them to what it feels like for them to be go to school or what it feels like when a teacher is working with you just to have more empathy and understanding towards them because again they're not having outward behaviors because they want to there's some sort mm-hmm. of lacking skill and there's something that's impacting them and if you don't have that empathy lens and understanding lens then probably not going to be able to to work with that population so um i mean in in regards to wanting i i wish that every school was fully funded i wish that we had trained people I, that felt comfortable doing some of the work even that i do um, and I, I wish that I could find a way to, to regulate staff and not make them feel overwhelmed um, mm. with what is going on. So, but yeah, they don't have That's, those powers. Yeah, I love that so much. And I, I would say of the the people that I've interviewed, you know, a lot of us said we would we wish that we could fully fund schools. Like that's always kind of the general response. But your response of wanting to be able to have that empathy, like that's so incredible. That's amazing. Like if we could all just be able to see things through someone else's perspective to and get their knowledge and their, you know, all of that, that would be really, I think the world would be different. 
<laughs> if we had that ability. We right? assume so much as human beings. And right. if we actually know what people have gone through that shape them. Right. And I, I tell that story of me earlier, just cause I feel like that's, we don't, I don't tell that to a lot of people. Now it's going to be, uh, you tell it to the whole world. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, my, my close friends and family know that, but I would say it, 90% of the people I work with now probably don't know that. So right. it's just something I don't want anybody to, to see me as like that. That's who I am. That's just a part of my journey that helped shape right. me and, and help me be the person I am today. So, right. Yeah. Well, and we talked about that earlier. I really believe that being in education is a calling, you know, I've ha- I have three kids yeah. and um, two of them, I could totally see going in, into education. And the third, they, I see them in business and they actually came yeah. to me and were like, I'm thinking about going into education. And I looked at them, I'm like, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> like that yeah. is not your calling. You know, you have, to, it's just too much to just take it as a job. And yeah. clearly your story shows that, you know, how this ended up being your calling. Right. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like for an educator too, I always try to get that, again, that support piece and that connection when I'm working with people is what was your calling? And let's find that again, because I think, again, so many people are burned, but why did you get into education and use that as kind of your feel or what is your core values as a, as a human being? And those are going to help drive you as, as a, a, an amazing educator and person for kids. So, right. Oh my gosh, Ryan, thank you so much for sharing, you know, yeah. your knowledge and, and what you do and how you navigate those tier three supports. Um, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to, to know? Uh, no, I just think, I mean, for me, I would like to say thank you for the opportunity. And I think thank you to all the people that I've worked with throughout the years that I've got to take pieces from them and, and be where I'm at today. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think I have any other questions, but yeah, it was an honor kind of to share a seat with you because I know oh. you're a well-respected person in our community. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I loved our conversation today. So thank you so much. And for our listeners, uh, this is season 11 of the Culture of Care on the OEA Grow. And uh, I hope that you'll take care. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Amy. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.